1: Welcome to We Dig Metal Evolution, a special Let It Roll maxi series discussing Sam Dunn's Metal Evolution documentary series, hosted by Nate Wilcox with Eugene S. Robinson of the art punk band Oxbow and entertainment lawyer Alexi Old. Let It Roll is the insanely ambitious musical history podcast. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Letter Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at Podcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate, Eugene, and Alexi discuss Thrash, the radical new form of American metal that produced Metallica email us at let it roll podcast at gmail.com pop in those earbuds and enjoy
0: it's time to let it roll i'm your host nate wilcox and we're back again with alexi old and eugene s robinson to continue our discussion of sam dunn's metal evolution series that aired on vh1 a little while ago the sixth episode is called thrash and covers the hardcore-influenced underground metal sound that emerged in response to the new wave of British heavy metal and provided a soundtrack for mostly white, angry young men of the 1980s. Whoa, whoa, whoa,
2: easy what, on the white.
0: What, uh, it was. I mean, come on. Like, how, white, how white am I, sir? Well, you're not that white, but the, the thrash scene was quite white. I mean, there was a little brown in there, but I'm just saying. That's, Death Angel. Yes, that thing. There were, I mean, plenty, plenty, plenty of sterling, you know, Latinos. high Yes, yes. I can just say there were plenty of Nazis at all the thrash metal shows I ever went to in the eighties. Let's just let's just put it that way. You were invited to different shows. No, no, no,
2: no, 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 not at all. He was going to shows in Texas,
0: San Antonio, which is the most Hispanic city in Texas, also Nazi rific. But anyway. The show starts out with sort of a need to justify thrash. Did you guys notice this? That, that that they immediately come out with, why do people like music that's so extreme? Or why would anybody want to make music like this? And then they get quotes from like Kerry King of Slayer, Gary Hold of Exodus, and you know get get Kerry King saying, you know, you know me, I'm the laid back, mellowest guy you ever met, but you get me in traffic and I'm a death row. Criminal, and that's why I write songs like this to to get that anger out. So, I mean, I don't know. They felt compelled to explain the genre, but it's, it's not the premise guys- of the show, though.
3: It's the chip on the shoulder and like, why is it that I have this? Right? Isn't that that? That's what that's what mm-hmm. the uh, leading question was initially for the show. It was like, why do I like metal and why do people like metal? So I I think it's a uh, the chip on the shoulder subculture having to justify. You know, I I totally get it. I mean, especially nowadays yeah. when he's looking back on certain things that, you know, aren't. You
2: know. I, I don't know. I mean, they're more clever editorial ways to address it. You know, I, I think that the conceit was kind of wearisome, right? That, I mean, people don't say, why do why do you listen to, you know, madrigals? I mean, uh, right. you know, yeah. his music is. Music.
0: Nobody does, but, you know, that's. <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: no, but, but, but what he's directly addressing is a scene that's around it, right? So. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
3: yeah. So instead of why so, it should be who, right? Would you think uh, that'd be yeah. more interesting? What's the difference between the yeah.
0: groups? Yeah, I mean, you know, in my experience in the '80s, it was working class white dudes who were a little more alienated than the Motley Crue fans.
2: Like, <laughs> with the white dudes, man. I, mean,
0: I I did not know any black people in the thrash metal. I knew a few black people in the hardcore punk, but okay. by the time you got to the thrash metal shows it had been filtered
2: out that's that's all i'm saying i you know well ron ron from juvenile justice is the first one first first guy i i mean i started out listening to metal you know i mean what passed from metal in 1975-76 kiss AC/DC, ted nugent right and then um but then in terms of coming out of hardcore the first person was this guy ron from juvenile justice who still was a noteworthy contribution to the not so quite in the western front compilation Uh, But he was the first one to say, look at this. And he gave me the record by uh, Accept. Um, And I was like, this is some wild. What do you, why do you listen to this shit? Like it was such a a departure for me from hardcore that I was not interested. But, you know, uh, I remember dragging me to a couple of shows and ah, I was like, "Ah," you know, I didn't like all the long hairs. It felt like beating them all up, you know, and I found them to be much less smart. Than the, the hardcore kids, but the, the orientation and the dedication was to, to it was just a different thing. It was a different thing,
0: you know. It, it was a different thing, but it was related, and they get to that quickly. They got yeah. Dave Lombardo talking yeah. about, you know, his segue pretty nicely with, with Lombardo because he's in the same how do I justify or why did I get into the thrash? And he's talking about how he had ADHD really bad. But then he said, you, I think a combination of that. <laughs> you could really yeah, tell. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. He says, a combination of that and the enjoyment of punk music, whether it was Circle Jerks, Dead Kennedys, or Minor Threat, that just fueled what I have already. And then they get so some academic, or I don't know if you can call Keith Con Harris, author of Extreme Metal, an academic, but he's a writer. And, and, and he says, you know, one of the things that defines thrash metal in the early 80s was a sense of seriousness, a kind of austerity influenced by punk, not necessarily always by the music of punk, but perhaps by some of the attitude of punk. And I definitely, I definitely think so. I mean, there was a period there, 80, 81, 79, 80, 81, when Bad Brains, Black Flag, Minor Threat, were Hands Down, the hardest rock and fastest stuff going on. And if you are in a city, that was exposed to that stuff. Cause if you're on the sticks, like me, hardcore didn't penetrate for years and years, but iron maiden hates me and I don't care. Well, who's the, who's the author well, of
2: Seth? Uh, me. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it, it's, it, it's this issue, uh, this issue of decibel. And the only yeah. reason I, the only reason I raise the point is because you're using them interchangeably. And, I, and I know that you, you, you I do use them interchangeably as well, but we're really not talking about punk like like the like Harris did from Iron Maiden. We're talking '77 to '80, and then you're yeah, talking eight, hardcore. Talking about hardcore, right? So this is this is this is what was influenced Iron Maiden. And this is what these cats were influenced by. They weren't influenced by Sid Vicious, and you know. Uh,
0: and- I'd say Maiden was. I'd say Maiden was. So Maiden was responding to the '77 punk outburst yeah, no, no, no. When,
2: when they when they were criticizing it, but their their whole
0: attack, I was, mean, was their first singer in the whole bit that was yeah. so punk, you know. Yeah. I mean, yes, and, and seventy seven class seventy seven punk, but these guys were influenced by hardcore, yeah. and that's the distinction that they do not make. They do not draw a distinction between yeah. hardcore and punk, and also <laughs> when they talk about, um, you know, like they got a quote from Alex Skolnick of Testament. He says, "You know, I loved punk." And that's what kind of got me going in this direction. But for me, musicianship was really important. You didn't really have great guitar players in punk. You didn't have great musicians in punk. You had great songs, but as a musician, I wanted to do more. On the whole, he's probably right, but Dr. Noah the Bad Brains is as great as a guitar player as there was in the era leaving fear were all really good musicians and but they also leave out discharge which is the one hardcore yeah. punk band and they were a british punk band so they were kind of outside britain really didn't catch on with the hardcore way but british punk went into this weird thing with oi and and skinheads and there were very few hardcore punk bands there was the exploited which i never got into personally or saw as a hardcore band but discharge absolutely was a hardcore band and absolutely did musically influence this scene. I mean, all these well, cats had that it, first
2: discharge album. You're leaving our G, uh, uh, GBH, um, you know, UK chaos. Yeah, there, there,
0: there are a few wow. other hardcore bands, but there wasn't a scene the way there was in the States. So, like you read about like when black flag toured the UK, they were not welcomed with open arms. They were spat on. And, and they just, you know, um, I mean, there was crass. There were there were some legit hardcore punk bands in England, but it just wasn't well, to the same extent. I, I, a I, would, never,
2: I would never call crass hardcore, but okay.
0: Well, you know, oh. I mean, they were hardcore in many ways. But Discharge yeah. absolutely was a musical influence on these guys. And and they and they sleep on that, in addition to sleeping on the distinction between hardcore and punk. But then they get into the other big influence, which is Nawabum, the famous mm-hmm. new wave of British heavy metal we talked about a couple of episodes ago, Lars Ulrich. Of course, uh admits that that was a huge influence, which he should since they started out playing Diamond head songs and not telling anybody what they were and the thing they leave out though is that I don't think that it was the intensity of Nawabum that was the big influence on thrash metal as much as it was I mean it had to be intense to get these guys' interest, and it could hang you know if if you were into metal and punk in eighty eighty one Diamond head, Iron Maiden praying man and stuff like that was rocking enough to meet the threshold. But the real thing that came from the directly into thrash was that prog style. Like when you listen to Metallica do a seven minute song with six different parts, that is not a verse, chorus, verse, chorus thing. And the weird, you know, uh, slightly discordant riffs that resolve elegantly that kind of stuff is coming from the especially Iron Maiden, the whole prog rock thing comes directly from Nawabum into Thrash. And I think that's what, what Thrash is, is. Is a is a cross between, you know, the prog influenced heavy metal of Nawabum and the and the hardcore punk of the of the hardcore punk scene. So it just had this massive intensity. Uh and and you know when Slayer and Metallica first came along, I mean I remember the hardcore kids, you know, people's ears were pinned back. It was it was clearly a step forward in aggression at kind of a point when hardcore had I wouldn't want to say stalled out, but when hardcore was kind of looking for a new direction, a lot of bands were getting artsy. Black Flag, had slowed down, who's produced making concept albums. Well, and, you were there more than I was, but...
2: Yeah, uh, but you, know, you were talking, so I don't want to interrupt you.
0: Well, as always
2: yeah I wasn't but one thing you don't they don't they don't cue into and you want to talk about intersectionality if you remember correctly but at this point in time like when Slayer came around Slayer was an antidote to the fact that hardcore at that point had been laughed by hip hop in, in terms of bad badass music, right? Yep. I mean, you you already had, you know, Schooly, Schooly D with PSK, Parkside Killers, what does it mean? And people's attention, were, I mean, people used to be really scared of hardcore kids. They weren't like the punk guys who were staggering around high on, on quaaludes, you know, they would fight you and you would get into fights. And if you notice, like from Quincy to, you know, class of 1984, the movies, the tone and the timbre of the movies, I mean thrashing and like you know slam dancing and all this stuff and close was actually people found it to be frightening and um so but at a certain point you know after enough tv specials we're just good-natured kids just trying to have a good time and then hip-hop came along and said yeah well you know what i shoot people <laughs> You yeah, no, i shoot them where i find them <laughs> <laughs> um, so Slayer, and it, I think it's noteworthy that Slayer, you know, that Rick Rubin was the first one to kind of advance his fortunes because he came out of, not only did he come out of hardcore, but he also came I think out you're
0: of. Your timeline's whacked, though, because PSK didn't come out till 85. Velo cool day. As- you that, that know, could be Slayer Metallica 83 or so that, that, that could
2: be but the fact of the matter was by 1982 David Dante Trout was giving me mixtapes from New York with what was amounting to gangster gangster hip hop you know which was you know guys shooting guys and using you know gun samples as soundtracks so it was it it was definitely something that people were like oh this is like not fucking around. This is like, oh, this is a very different thing. So Slayer was, I mean, if you remember the problem they had with that, you know, we Slayer was Slayer was hardcore in very many respects early on. Unremittingly, unrelentingly hardcore about their whole shtick, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean when I first saw Slayer, I saw him opening up for Motorhead and I went to see Motorhead. I was not a metal guy at that point, but Motorhead was the one band that all the punk guys liked. And Slayer, I mean, Motorhead was great, but Slayer had so thoroughly blown everybody away. I could barely register Motorhead at that point, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, and Overkill yeah. was fine too, but Slayer was just so clearly head and shoulders on beyond anything I'd seen that it, yeah. I was a total instant convert. But that was pretty late. I was I was pretty square on the scene. Didn't come into it and, until like eighty eight. And they so. also d-
2: delivered the my, my most my hands down fate, like winningest moment. Um, was when they did uh, a, a hardcore cover thing, and they did a cover of Minor Threat's "Guilty of Being White," which finally got Ian MacKay's attention. I, I remember having an argument with him back at Tesco V's backyard about that song, and I go, "Man, it's a shit song, bro. It just sucks. It's just shitty." He goes, "Well, you don't know what it was like to grow up in D.C." I was like, "Ah, man, I don't give a shit. I don't." So we argued about it, and it was finally when Tom Araya <laughs> sang it that he was like. Yeah, I guess this all kind of sucks.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, the Slayer was—I don't want to yeah. put words in their mouth, but there were a lot of Nazis at the Slayer show, and yeah, you definitely yeah. got the feeling they were just fine with that. Like, yeah, yeah. right. But like, well, you grew up in DC, and and you know, what, what's your take on the whole minor threat, guilty, being well, whacked So, the
3: whack? so thing is that minor threat and all that kind of stuff was—I saw that. Um, you saw, I saw murmurings of that. I didn't know anybody who was listening to Minor Threat. I didn't know anyone who was part of that scene, but I think it's also because I came to that scene late. Um, you know, that's number one. Number two, when I listened to Minor Threat decades later, <laughs> knowing that the background of Minor Threat, guilty of being white, totally makes sense. I mean, it's a predominantly black city. The schools that they went to were diverse schools, were predominantly black. And the thing that I always thought was wild was growing up in DC and then moving to the suburbs for high school or really like 10th to 12th uh-huh. grade, there was a difference uh-huh. between the white people that were in DC that didn't leave because of the riots and the people in the suburbs in Maryland. So the the, the white kids that were in DC that were going to Wilson and thinking things, I'm not saying that anyone's perfect, but they were more down and more open and more diverse right. and had a more diverse crew they were dealing with. So guilty of being white as a Woodrow Wilson, Washington, DC experience in the 80s, totally it's something that again, in retrospect, I can listen to and I laugh at because I totally understand that kind of group of people. So, you know, but again, I don't know how I can totally see yeah. how outside of DC it would resonate as something different yeah. because DC is it's, kind yeah. of a unique animal with regards like being yeah. a black city. Black yeah. people running DC, Chocolate City, yeah. and diversity as yeah. well, as opposed that, to what the dynamic is outside of you know that area.
2: And that's what what I tried to get across to him. I said, you know, you have a global audience just because you printed up fifteen hundred of these things. People listen to shit all over the world, man. It's very different scene depending on where you go, and yep. this is you should understand. So like, that that is everybody. You just have to understand from my perspective. I go, yeah, yeah, okay. Also, <laughs> he's been he's been on my mind lately because of Detroit the movie. about the hardcore scene in detroit and he actually like they had an excerpt he walked across the room and one day said hmm i'm gonna take a shot at eugene (laughs) he he does this whole segment that they release as the detroit movie that talks about the night we played with them at the freezer theater and you know i I bummed 50 dollars off him it's like oh nobody who knows me will be surprised i did that he goes that's kind of fucked he said they would play for free i go I never said I'd play for free. <laughs> nobody who knows me believes I played anything for free. So, yeah, I can't believe <laughs> that, 35 years later, dudes walking across the room to give me on, on a video clip to give me a hard time about asking, to, well, demanding. $50. Well,
0: all of Austin is still furious at the bad brains over a $25 pot burn from, but also with plenty of homophobia on top of yeah. it. Yeah. But, but still, anyway, these, these are these are petty old vindictive things. Yes. The next thing they get into is the musical styles of it. And 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 dun 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 points out that you know it's it's not just um an imitation of hardcore or a nawabum. It's it's got new elements: the screeching vocals, the ultra fast rhythm guitar, made a unique musical style. But most importantly, it's the double bass drum. And I, I really like this part where they get into it. And they asked multiple people where did that come from and everybody dave lombardo and lars ulrich drummers in slayer and metallica respectively both say motorhead credit phil taylor with the double bass from overkill so you know we all agree that motorhead got not enough shine and the wavum episode partly because they were early and they weren't the most commercially successful out of that scene either but the the thrash guys all crediting Yep. Motorhead with 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 the double bass drum and and that I think I think I think that you could argue, you know, while the was going on, that there are various bands who are the leaders of it, Iron Maiden, Def Leppard, blah blah blah. And you could put Motorhead back in the pack, but when Motorhead starts moving up the pack, is when their influence on successive generations of musicians comes out, yeah. and this this is vindication. But they don't talk about the lead guitar styles at all, <clears throat> which. I, don't, I agree that the double bass drum is the most important thing, but, you know, Kirk Hammett, Dave Mustaine, um, both the guys in Slayer, Kerry King, and, and Jeff Hanneman, all killer guitar players. They were all post, they had all digested the innovations of Eddie Van Halen and Randy Rhoads, but they took it way further with tons of whammy bar action and this crazy, Kerry King in particular, just sounds like a completely demented, Lunatic when he's when he's soloing. I mean, he's just going crazy with the whammy bar. And there were new advances in technology, so you could whammy like that and not be out of tune like Jimmy Hendrix would get. You know, I mean, you could you could whammy and whammy and whammy and, and stay in tune. So, you know, but I ha- I
2: have to say that we, the 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 really special thing that this edition did it, it made me remember why I had liked Dave Mustaine so much. You <laughs> know. And like every time he opens his mouth, he's like whining in the press. But if you just let him set up a microphone and set up a camera, man, he, it was great to watch. He was just really fucking dryly fun. He was just, it was great. It was, it's like he needs to do more of that and less talk at the journalist because, uh, you know, like video, audio, something because you can, he just, he just, he delivers it. It, it made well, up. For line. Years.
0: When mean, they're and, like trying to get to the, why are you into thrash and and it was was it because of your you know what your parents did to your your childhood and and that he's like great. well that might make me want to kill my parents but you know I got into thrash because <laughs> I wanted to fit in and have friends so <laughs> you know it's funny Eugene, because my yeah. experience
3: with Mustang is is different it isn't the whiny it is the thing that's more uh um in line with how he appeared in the series and I guess it's because you know back in the day I was always on. Uh, Team Megadeth as opposed to Metallica. You know, just, for, right. just for some... Before I knew you know, the reasons or, or got a sensation of why I would not like Metallica, um, yeah. Megadeth just always appealed to me more. There's just something... I don't know if it's... The vocals to me appeal yeah. to me more. The sound appealed to me more. And it's All something right. that over time, when I go back, like, oh, what's I in a different mood? Like, no, there's just something... I feel in terms of whininess, I find Metallica whinier and like trying hard to be something they're not. Uh, Whereas Megadeth is just, I think it's in the the vein of a motorhead and, Uh, you know, there's a certain guttural and just more, I don't know if it's a bass. Maybe that's Uh, what it is. Just a little more bass going on and more macho as opposed to. A guy yeah, trying I, to prove that he's tough and he's, you
2: know. Yeah, I think that where where Metallica, people always complain about Lars, where Metallica really fails me these days is with uh, the vocals. Yeah. And you can tell he's just stopped thinking about vocals he, about 10 years ago. And that was one of the things that was sort of special mm-hmm. about him getting, huh? Yeah,
0: yeah. Hetfield, I mean, yeah, first couple of, of yeah. exactly. Metallica yeah. albums, Hetfield yeah. can actually sing. And Mustang yeah. doesn't, isn't a good singer, right? but he does have an effective growl for, for thrash.
3: That's ball. all I needed when I was younger. Yeah. I wanted that growl. I don't want a guy singing ballads or like, yeah, yeah. And like, yeah. you know, it just it did, did nothing. <laughs> and I think it's a, going back to what Eugene was saying with the hip hop. I think um, at the time when I was listening to the the music that was going around, hip-hop with the bass and the voice, the bass and the music, the force, the power, the strength, not like talking about Dungeons & Dragons shit, like real life, like not talking about, if I'm in a certain world, I'm gonna murder you, like, no, motherfucker, like it it just, Mm -hmm. it's just more street, more raw and get you, you know, that to a certain degree um, when I was younger and heard Ozzy and you're like, these motherfuckers are Satanists, you know, like and then you hear gunshots on wax and you're like, these motherfuckers are shooting people. You know what I mean? So so just in terms of the base, I don't know if that's where the thing, the the base and the the true like macho kind of growl as opposed to the more high-pitched whiny kind of, Trying to pretend that you're a man and you're not. Like, it just, just for me, yeah. it just seemed like a lot more poser going on. Well, and also, also
2: that doc, that documentary, some kind of, they never should have ever, ever done oh, the that. The thing
0: way. with them doing the, the therapy sessions, yeah. 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 That's, that's, that's all. But I think, I think, in fairness to the scene and, and the, the and, times that we and, can't talk about, he's like, let me finish shit on Metallica. Hold
3: on, Nate. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not let sure you yeah. finish Let me
0: finish on Metallica. Try to remember when Cliff Robert. was alive.
2: And, you know, and Metallica robbing me. I just want to get that I, in. Robbing I, me. <laughs> robbing me blind. Right. Uh, no, 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 no. No, in a very serious way. Marion Faithful hadn't done shit for years. We went through great expense and effort to get her in or to the Oxbow Serenade of Red. The, uh, Metallica's manager at the time was friends with Dan Adams Oxwell's bass player so I'm 100% sure they heard the stuff we had done with Marion Faithful they get him on that MTV show uh, Head Ball and they ask him that was such a great idea to work with Marion Faithful where'd you get the idea from and he, they kind of pause and then they go uh, our manager came up with it. It's like you fucking knew where it came from. Yeah, a little nod would have helped. Just a little bit. Just a, that's oh, all. Yeah. Just a little that's consistent bit. with
0: Metallica. That's, yeah, yeah. Exactly. That's all. That's all way down the road, and we'll talk more about the Metallica <laughs> set in the second half. Of that's this. a preview
3: first, of the shitting yeah. we're gonna do on Metallica. Yeah. In the next but episode, first,
0: Metallica gets together and and they're in LA, and they bring this up, like you know. Thrash is, is synonymous with the Bay Area and the East Coast. But actually, Metallica and Metal Blade came from L.A. And so they, they talked to Brian Slagle, who's the head of Metal Blade Records, the first guy to put Metallica on a compilation album. And that compilation got him noticed in San Francisco. They get invited to do some gigs up there. They get a much better response in San Francisco. And, and you know, the rest is history. And then they talk about Bay Area thrash, which the Bay Area was very different then. I don't think you could have a working class music coming out of, of San Francisco today. Like, not like you could there. I mean, the the makings of Exodus and Testament and death angel and all these bands that came out of there are no longer there. They've been pushed, pushed way out to the periphery central Central Valley. Yeah. And and to other places, maybe in Fresno, you could get a, a death metal scene going, but not, not in the Bay area. And, and, but the thing that they leave out is all of this um, personnel changes that go on. They show Mustaine with Metallica. They show him there with, in multiple interviews. They show him on stage with Metallica, but they don't talk about the breakup. They don't talk about how then they poach Kirk Hammett away from Exodus, which was a massive loss for Exodus, who never regained the momentum. And they don't talk about Cliff Burton. They show him, but they do not talk about him at all or his, yeah. his tragic death after making Master of Puppets and y'all can diss on Lars and Hetfield all you want I don't think anybody's mad at Kirk Hammett but Cliff Burton was a king I yep. mean that guy played like a mofo no yep. I've never heard a bad thing said about him yep. total freak hippie um, guy but just a killer bass player and I think gave them a certain integrity and a bass sound like the bass sound on those first three albums that he's on is much louder. I think they lost their hearing. And so they they mixed mm-hmm. everything super trebly after that. But the last thing I want to cover on this one is uh, the the moshing. And that's the Bay Area brings in moshing. And, and that's a function of the punk scene was big there and bled yeah. over. We'll talk about the Bay Area being the first place where crossover happened, where hardcore and metal uh, merged and had overlapping yeah. audiences. And it's totally a massively different thing. I know older metal heads and, and when you talk about the guys that would headbang bang and, and put the devil horns up, those guys were real touchy about their personal space. They were yep. very serious. They were not into the whole, they will shoot you, but they're not going to be moshing with you, you know? In and, Texas. And so, in, in, in Texas. It, it, yeah. But in, I mean,
2: so they were just getting beaten up, you know?
0: Well, yeah. Yeah. yeah but, but and and you know, and anyway, once that was the beauty of Thrash, once you had a critical mass of kids who wanted to mosh and slam dance, uh, there was no stopping it. And you just had to get in and and go. And that to me is a big change. Once the, the moshing and slam dancing comes in, that's kind of the, the classic rock dudes are out. Like that's yep. that's where the older classic rock dudes who were there for Iron Maiden and Judas Priest, et yep. cetera. Are, same kind, of, are, same kind of douche that got rid of punk rockers, right? Yeah, and and yeah. so you know they 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 check out, and so this is part of, of punk's long term triumph, uh, you know, culturally. But you know they lost they lost the first run in seventy seven pretty handily, and then
2: Did, go ahead. I was just, we also recorded um, Narcotic Story in Metallica's studio in Marin, and we lost two days. Because the studio sounded so bad that we had to build like a skiff. We had to build a studio inside the studio, and the people who were running it were like, "What are you guys doing?" You know, Joe Chiccarelli, the dude who's won all the Grammys, you know, the one who's recording, producing our record. He says the sound sucks, and the woman looks at us and goes, "Well, it was good enough for Metallica." We're like, "Yeah, you just you said a mouthful, <laughs> you know." <laughs> and this, this is this is. This is post-Clip Burton, right? So
0: Yeah, way post, way post. And post Metallica being good or relevant in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. I mean, you know, but we'll we'll get to their whole transition in the second half. The last the last bit I want to talk about is the tape trading thing.
1: Mm. And that's
0: yeah, was, and that's I thought they also don't mention how ironic that they've got Lars Ulrich in there I'm talking about <laughs> what a tape trader he was yeah, when he probably did more than anybody else to kill Napster. <laughs> Obviously yeah. there's differences in scale. Nobody was trading digital pristine digital copies of entire collections with this but oh. and it was good for the music i mean like death angel talks about how they they were known as soon as they started traveling just because of the tape traders and it was this thing with zines and magazines little ads in the back and me and my friends were doing it too that's how i heard discharge the first time you'd write off and say i have you know dri i have coc i've got husker du what do you got you know and you trade tapes and put them in the mail and and if you were in borger texas like i was you know, that was a lifeline to civilization. My mom didn't think it was so civilized when the envelopes started coming in with, you know, pentagrams and everything on them. But, you know, it, it was a real thing. And that's and also, I think, a factor in what made this scene go global early was it was always underground. It was always kids. But that's the thing about Thrash and from Heavy Metal from this point forward is it becomes an international underground scene worldwide. And that's all for this. We'll come back and finish up, talk about uh, the rise of Metallica, the peak of Thrash, and what brought the movement to an end.
1: And now, a word from our sponsors.
0: We're back to continue our discussion of Metal Evolution's Thrash episode. When we paused, we were talking about tape trading and the way uh, Lars Ulrich was participating in an underground economy similar to the one he would later condemn so famously, but it paid off big time for Metallica when uh, a guy named John Zazula got a hold of one of their demo tapes and uh, decided he would segue from being a flea market owner. To being a record label and founded megaforce records because quote he started megaforce because no one would sign metallica so thoughts on the megaforce signing of metallica the big moment when thrash metal went from demo tapes and way 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 underground to just actually underground
2: um, that was a stroke of genius. And periodically, like weird stuff would happen like that. Of course, they tried to duplicate that that weirdness with Guns N' Roses by creating some fictitious company that released the first record, which was a crock of shit and never real. But, um, you know, I mean, this guy was a person of his time. Plenty of those people were self-releasing music back then and it was just metal's turn. I mean, Black Flag had no label support until damaged and that ended up so badly that they never returned to it and indeed set the seeds for the creation of SST. So these guys should be hailed as uh, sort of revolutionary but they were doing stuff that everybody else had done. They just did it with a band that ended up being huge. And I guarantee you dollars to donuts um, if you probably looked at all the tapes when they got, <laughs> sorry to do this, but if they talked to those people for two hours and they only used 15 minutes, if you listened to the whole two hours, I bet eventually they got around to, you know, Metallica kind of fucked us over. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, indeed. And that's the next segment when they talk about the famous Roseland Ballroom show. They also don't mention yeah. the Megaforce put out Metallica's second album as well as their first paid for the production. Zazul was also managing the band, promoting the band and the record label, which is conflicts of interest. But like he sent him to Europe to record Ride the Lightning, um, invested a ton of money and promoted the show at the Roseland Ballroom where Michael Ilago, an AR exec from Elector Records quote, made a beeline backstage, went past security, went past everything. And then I practically bolted the door to backstage so I could talk to Lars Ulrich and and sign that deal and sure enough they signed they signed uh to Electra, which was a big deal for the thrash scene they've got a quote from scott ian of anthrax talking about how you know raven signed a deal right out of that show Metal and raven really fits in the in the Nawabum category they were on megaforce though at this point for their american releases at this point in time and uh and then you could quote, basically say all three bands signed their major label deals from playing that Roseland show because Anthrax ultimately ends up on Atlantic, but as part of Megaforce. Megaforce came with them. And, and Zazula was doing the same deal with Anthrax where he's managing, promoting, and he's the record label, and then uses that to make his record label essentially a major label deal. Although it didn't do Raven any favors because they got the whole major label you're going to be a glam band kind of treatment that the thrash bands were briefly exempt from then they then they quote brian slagle of metal blade records they don't mention that he put out the first couple of slayer records and then they quote him saying you know slayer started getting pretty big and the major labels are all coming after him descending upon them like crazy and they eventually signed with rick rubin's label. And, but when Slayer left and signed with the majors, that was a great thing for these guys to take that next step. He doesn't mention that he fought that tooth and nail and kept the rights to Slayer's first two albums. And I believe the publishing as well. So, you know, it's always two sides to every story. Mm -hmm. And one of those sides tends to inevitably involve a record company screwing over a band. I mean,
2: you know what? It it, it is hard to not screw over bands. It really is hard to not screw them over. They don't read the contract and they're clearly paying paying attention to other stuff. Now, there are a couple of bands that are coming up in future editions um, that I'm not going to name them here, but I watched their labels enable horrible behavior because they knew it meant that the guys weren't going to be sharp and paying attention to contracts. I mean, Dude's clearly got an alcohol problem. Doesn't want it. He doesn't want it backstage. And what's backstage? Oh, we'll get it next time. It happened so often. It wasn't accidental. You know, finally. I mean, in actual fact, the guy is a lifer, cleaned himself up and uh, seems to be doing fine. But who know, who God knows what he signed during that period of extreme partying, you know, and the label was just happy to have him do it. You know?
0: Yep. And the label is always furnishing things like pinball machines for the studio and, and, Hookers and blow and stuff, and not telling the band. Uh, this is all coming out of your advance. Yep. We're gonna we're yep. gonna build this back to uh, to recoup. And then they segue from the triumphant signing to major labels to what many consider the greatest thrash record of all time, Slayer's Rain and Blood, which came out in 1986 on Def Jam. Uh, Andy Wallace and Rick Rubin produced it. They talk about that quite a bit. They've got Andy Wallace, who later becomes really famous for mixing uh, Nirvana's Nevermind album, but and he'd had a long career as a mixer, but was pretty below the radar until Rick Rubin found him and made him his right-hand man. Essentially, Rick Rubin had no technical skills, wanted somebody to twiddle all the knobs while he sat on the couch and, and and looked thoughtful. I mean, I, I'm not going
2: to... Which has continued to this day, in actual fact.
0: Yeah, and so has his track record of success and good taste, so... You know, yeah, like yeah. his work with the Red Hot Chili Peppers, your favorites and dear uh, personal friends. Uh, I, I, you were closer. I'd kill you right now. <laughs> <laughs> Happily, I'm half a continent away. But you know, they do talk about the the what was frankly a revolutionary mix, where they they cut out all the reverb, they mic'd everything up really close mixed everything right down the middle carrie king you know points to his forehead and says they mixed it so it all hits you right here and just put tiny tiny little tastes of reverb on a couple of guitar solos and 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 they got a quote from andy wallace saying you know i did it this way because a lot of the metal records i'd heard they tended to be a little thinner on the low end which is pretty generous statement and he says a lot of the double kick stuff was like a typewriter, which I think is a pretty accurate yep. statement. Yep. And yep. the fact that he actually added some bass or didn't add some bass, captured some bass from Slayer was a huge part of making the album a success. And and you could hear Dave Lombardo's drum parts all of a sudden. I mean, if you go back and listen to the first three or four Slayer records on Metal Blade, it it does the kick drum does sound like a typewriter and, and, and you know, big waste. Great album, Rain and Blood. Um Anybody got a different candidate for greatest thrash record of all time? No? no,
2: no, no, I think that, I think that would pretty much be it. You know, I mean,
0: yeah. You know, I actually prefer South of Heaven. This is controversial, um, but that's because I got South of Heaven before I got Rain and Blood. And so, mm-hmm. and I, and I, and South of Heaven has that slow drum part on the first song. Whereas Rain and Blood has the sled drum part, like three or four songs in. so
2: I, I have to say, though, this is an unpopular choice, but um, it, it, it I was won over by a single line from a single song from one of their least loved records, which, you know, as a lyricist, I'm always tying into the, lyri- the lyrical impact or import of something. And I've listened to all their lyrics. And in the first couple of records, yeah, they're good songs in there, but there's nothing that, that has a lyrical bite. But on God Hates Us, God hates us All what is the song like uh, new faith maybe. And there's a great line. There's a. I keep my Bible in a pool of blood so that none of its lies will affect me. <laughs> I think uh, it, it, It's not often that I listen to Slayer and I go, man, I wish I had written that, but I, that's the one line that I wish I had, that I'd written. It's just, it's, it's, great. it's great. For example, like I, I went through a moment where I was like sitting, driving around listening to sick of it all. And I said, I've seen all of the bands. This is the best hardcore band ever. Why? Because they have a song. Uh, when it's us against them, you can always count on me. I was like that. That single song encapsulates the total hardcore ethos from 1981 to '85. Forget about Minor Threat. Forget about Black Flag. Those guys were influenced by something completely different. The first, you know, sui generis hardcore band was sick of it all and it summed up in that one song uh, mm-hmm. Us versus." The...
0: That, that is controversial. That is a controversial take.
2: Um, it'll, it'll, come, it'll come up again later. I'm sure there's going to be a hardcore segment. So,
0: Not per se. Not in this series. So Thrash is talk, probably as close they don't, to... They, don't, they, don't, they really don't talk about Cro-Mags? No. They're not going to talk uh, about Cro-Mags. They're not going to even talk about Stormtroopers of Death. The, the, the uh, Thrash band that Scott Ian was in which you know Billy Billy,
2: Billy Milano
0: yes yes who who later uh, could you know split off into MOD which I can't remember what that stood for but Stormtroopers of Death for my money was always better than Anthrax which yeah yeah, of course Another controversial opinion, but then then they get to the peak. He says Sam Dunn says thrash was now metal's fastest growing subgenre. Thrash albums were going gold and platinum, videos were in regular on, rotation on MTV, and its fans were now an international subculture. What they leave out is that Metallica went gold with no MTV help, with no radio, just touring their asses off, and were totally underground. And that's the thing. Like we were ragging on James Hetfield with his. Luxury shopping bag memes and and his you know the whole movie about his therapist and everything, but if you go back in time to the early '80s, Metallica really was a different animal. They really were the flag bearers for thrash, and the anti glam band before Guns and Roses came along. You know, oh, Metallica, yeah.
2: Yeah, 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 of course, of course, of course, yes. of course. I mean, Metallica you, was killing that flag. You, You would see those guys at shows. I mean, I remember seeing them. I I mean, admittedly, they were at the Stone, which was across from the on Broadway, which was above the Mab, where they used to have all the hardcore shows. But he was not afraid just to be walking out in the street by himself, you know? Um, So,
0: because he was was essentially nobody, just a kid, just a rock and roll kid like everybody else. But the thing that they leave out was that at the peak of thrash metal, was it was also the peak of Guns N' Roses, Jane's Addiction, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Living Color, uh, NWA had come out already, and, and that you know Public Enemy was big, so there was, you know, they tend to want to set this up as if there was all this metal stuff happening, and then grunge just comes out of nowhere like a meteor that destroys the dinosaurs, when really grunge was just one of many waves of alternative to the mainstream and non-glam music that that Massively hit big. And then they get to the end or the peak. The ultimate dream tour was Clash of the Titans, which featured Anthrax Slayer and Megadeth all in the same bill. But this tour also foreshadowed a major transition in heavy music in America because the opening band was future grunge superstars Alice and Chains. That's right. So, yeah. So, so it totally set it up. You know, again, the grunge is going to come along and kill you. Boy, they don't point out is that Alice in Chains was on this tour because they were being marketed as a metal band because they were a metal band. Yeah. I mean, Alice in Chains were very talented opportunists and which I don't think is anything wrong with that. Um, but that's what they were. They were basically glam metal wannabes who were living in a rehearsal space in Seattle instead of one in LA. And because of that, they got exposed you know to Soundgarden and the different things that were going on and had a lot of those influences too. Learned the d- drop detuning but you know Mother Love Bone which is which was most of Pearl Jam with a different singer uh Andrew the late great Andrew Wood they were totally being marketed as a metal band a glam metal band Soundgarden was being ma- marketed as a metal band they were opening up for Danzig the first time I saw him Alice Chains on this so but that was already after
2: super super mega okay, right? I mean, but their, okay. ultra, yeah. ultra yeah, their presence on SST had already marked them as like a, a metal metal crossover, the hardcore metal crossover band to me, right? I mean, they were not oh, us to no. do, but they weren't like Dio, right? So
0: no, but and, and that's another thing though that that it's widely rumored that they signed with A and M before they they never actually signed with SST that A&M cut a deal with SST to put their first album out on SST to do exactly what Guns N' Roses had done except with a, a, a legit label which ironically if they had done it just left them on Sub Pop the label they were already on and financed better distribution for Sub Pop then they would have even been hipper you know. No. Because but, but nobody knew Sub Pop how hip Sub Pop was going to be in very short order
3: but you know back in the day <laughs> watching it just as a total casual more casual than you guys um Soundgarden and Alice in Chains did not come across as grunge at all. Like they were so close to their they to me back in the day when I was a fan of metal, they were like metal bands and they were closer to metal than yeah. the grunge groups were to metal. I mean, Pearl Jam and a lot of the grunge groups just seemed soft and whiny and they did, they did they didn't have I'm just saying this is back in the day like when when the stuff was coming yeah. out. So they resonated with me in the same way that a lot of the hip hop bands resonated with me because there was you know when you're looking toward for for a certain amount of 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 energy and aggression and bass and power they were bringing it whereas and drugs uh, well, you know what? I was straight, I was straight edge. but it was, but, but they just, they totally had, without knowing what straight ish was. So the thing is, but, <laughs> no, they, no, what, but
2: they had, they had, they had a drug vibe about them. So they did manage to do the Keith Richards bad boy thing. If you couldn't, if you didn't know it, you would know it. You could feel mm, it, right? I mean, to me, it seemed like heroin music. So, mm,
3: well, not, no, I mean, I didn't pick up on any of that. So I'm just saying that, that just Pearl Jam, um, uh, even Metallica, which was not grunge at all, like there was just something a little more airy and shrill about their performances, as opposed to a Soundgarden or definitely Alice in Change, which was, and or that's why I preferred Megadeth to Metallica. There was just like just something more guttural about yeah. their performance, you know, and maybe it was Eugene not picking up on the on the heroin culture, but there was just like this grit and guttural. Um, uh, presentation and sound and rough sound they had that Pearl Jam just uh, just never really That's
2: well and also gonna, too know. you look at I mean, Eddie Vedder has always seemed like a big fucking phony to me mm-hmm. I mean oh, no, harsh, I, I, harsh no he
0: has just, you know. yeah I've always, I've always had that same thing Goatman. too and especially after Kurt Cobain's suicide, the way Vedder just tied himself in knots, trying to be Mr. Mm. Authentic, changed the sound yeah. of the band with every album, had the big yeah. fight with Ticketmaster. Um, you know, I, I I don't know, but let's 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 stick a thrash. We'll we'll talk about Grunts <laughs> next time. But then they talk about. The Black Album and the big transition and thrash bands start changing their sound. and Metallica's Black Album was the band's most accessible record to date. It was a huge commercial success. It sold over twenty two million copies. I think more like five million copies in the first couple of years. But the thing is, when the Black Album came out, it really did sound like a grunge album. I mean, it was clear that they had been listening to to Alice in Chains and Nirvana and and Pearl Jam and and calibrated their sound. Did Bob Rock quite a that I believe he did. Um, you know, and everything's which is why meticulously in tune. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mind it at the time, although I, I got tired of it. And when I want to listen to Metallica now, I go back and listen to Kill 'em all or, or Master of Puppets. I, I almost never listen to Injustice for All and I definitely never listen to the Black Album. I definitely don't listen to the album they made with Lou Reed. Um which is Oh no, don't,
2: don't you mean the record that
0: killed Lou Reed? <laughs> yes. The record that yeah. killed Lou Reed. <laughs> Sorry. Yes, um, so you know they, they talk about this change. They get quotes from multiple um, Thrash guys. They got the singer from Overkill saying, "You know, as soon as I heard it, I knew Thrash is now, to its credit, a classic all-time record." They've got the guy from Exodus saying, "You know, if you don't like it, you're high." They've got the guy from Testament talking about how much they dig it. Then they get to what Sam Dunn thinks, and he doesn't. He, he he asked Dina Weinstein, the academic from DePaul University, that he's been talking to. So why did I feel betrayed? And she's like, "Well, because she had been that they did sell out, uh, you know, thrash, and they they went for the gold, and they got the gold." But like Lars Ulrich says, you know, they were what the alternative was was putting out "Injustice for All" too. So I think it's a totally logical logical point. And like, if you look- like 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 Lars Ulrich says, I have a Picasso here. Would you like to see it? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: <Okay>. <laughs> but then they get into the um distort distortion that that produced and and the same thing was happening all over it's like when garth brooks got so massive in country music it killed the kind of ma- really cool alternative country scene that had been blossoming for several years because the, the threshold went from if you sell two hundred thousand copies you're a major label act in good standing thrash was had it set set up where if you if you went gold you were a thrash band in good stand the record company would leave you alone but after metallica made all that money then every record label that had a thrash band was just sitting there thinking well why don't these guys turn into metallica and that's when they show the really painful testament video where they made him do a ballad and it's like taking chuck billy and making him Do a ballad and and a video that could have been Warrant or Winger, man. I remember when that crap came out, and it was just absolutely painful, you know. And they've got Gary Holt of Exodus talking. You know, I think many of us tried to follow that fork in the road, the Metallica fork, you know. And then then he contrasts it with Slayer, stay true to what they did, and it absolutely shows there and their long term success shows that it worked. What they don't mention, of course, is that Dave Lombardo quit Slayer partly because they wouldn't record the big hit ballad that he wanted him to and was gone for 10 years. And and it took them at least 18 months, I think, to adequately replace him. I mean, it's like they blew a tire on the freeway and and were out of the game for a while. So they weren't tempted to put this stuff out because their timing was off and they missed the opportunity. They also don't mention how Megadeth is really the only one of these bands who followed in the path of Metallica and didn't share that level of success, but did have multiple platinum albums. And, and I don't know, for me, like when I saw Clash of the Titans, Megadeth got just thrashed. It wasn't as bad as when Striper and Slayer went on tour together, but Megadeth, as much as like their riffs or brilliant guitar licks and stuff, when you heard them up against Anthrax and Slayer, the rhythm section just had no Boom to it. And, and, and they just got killed. And Allison Chains was also really winning over the crowds. I, I, I remember being, you know, really impressed by that at the time. Um,
2: I have to say, if I've given a choice with a gun and somebody runs in and they say, Allison Chains or Helmet, and if you choose Helmet, we're going to kill you, I would choose Allison Chains. Well, no, if I choose <laughs> Allison Chains, gonna kill you, I would choose Allison Chains.
0: I see. I see. Well, I don't know why you're picking on Helmet just because. I, no uh, I
2: just I, I had to get it in there. I Maybe say, it's a hat. You, it's that, the trucker hat you're wearing that reminded me. <laughs> which I hated those guys.
0: <laughs> well, they won't be mentioning helmet either, or the band that ripped them off, Pantera. Which, which I'm still you kind of say, you keep saying that.
2: I don't hear that at all. You got to tell I'll, me what, what you're li- li- tell me some Pantera to listen to where I can hear that because I just don't hear it at all.
0: Vulgar display of power. Listen to the first. To to helmet strap it on and then listen to Pantera's vulgar display okay. of power. And okay. you know, or or the whole transition. Listen to, to um what was it, Cowboys from Hell, that the first respectable yeah. Pantera album. Dig up whatever the Pantera album was when they were a hair metal band before that. Listen to those yeah. three albums, listen to strap it on. I believe you'll hear it. Nah. Then they've got a great quote from Alex Skolnick of Testament, who's like, you know, it's not good musicianship that makes a successful band. It's good decision-making, which is absolutely the case. And that is some hard-won bitter wisdom uh, that the guys in Testament had, you know, after having the whole experience nah. of signing the major label deal, getting the buses, getting the pinball games in the studio. You know, they've got a quote from Dave Mustaine talking about how when he signed with Capitol, the record executive pulled out a mirror with cocaine on it. And he's like, Dave, we have arrived. And, you know, I'm sure Mustang knows at this point that that cocaine was billed back to him, but um, you know, never trust a record label exec bearing gifts because I guarantee you the band paid it. But then they, they um, bring in sort of the happy ending for thrash. And also I do want to mention, they talk about how thrash, several people, multiple writers and bands like thrash petered out because they didn't know where to go from where they had gone. Like after the big four all had a classic album, it wasn't clear what the next direction was going to be. Anthrax tries, you know, dabbling in rap metal. Slayer stuck with what they were doing. Metallica did, you know, basically turn into a grunge band. Megadeth, I mean, Megadeth, even on Rust in Peace, I think they're, they're moving away from pure thrash. But then if you listen to the bands that stuck with it, it, it becomes death metal and and grindcore and I don't know. That that stuff was I mean, talk about a corner to be painted into. But the happy ending and this contrasts with glam from last week, which, you know, the nail in the coffin for glam was when they got Dina Weinstein to say there was no successive generation of of bands that picked up the, the glam flag. Like after po- poison inspired a lot of people to buy their tapes, but they didn't inspire any bands to pick up guitars and become the next poison whereas thrash did and they talk about two scenes the Gothenburg sound of sweden that came out um in the early 2000s and what they call the new wave of american metal headed up by lamb of god which was another wave of thrash influenced bands and basically both of those bands kept melody at the forefront and avoided the trap of death metal which becomes just totally guttural noise i mean not that i don't like some death metal but it's not something you're going to be singing along to. You're not going to get any, any buddy Metallica's coming out of that. And uh, you never had a platinum death metal band or even close. I don't even know if you had a gold level death man death metal band, but anyway. And so that's kind of the happy ending for thrash is that, is that they did uh, have an ongoing legacy of bands that, that picked up on it. And the other thing to me is this is really the last episode that we're going to talk about. That is Prime metal. I think everything after this is going to be hyphenated metal. It's going to be, you know, mm-hmm. this or that new subgenre. And mm-hmm. even though Thrash seemed like this really radical statement in the 80s, Rain and Blood now is kind of the definitive metal album. Like, I, oh. you know, I don't think kids today know who Ritchie Blackmore was, but they know who Kerry King is, you know, and they and they and they're emulating Slayer, and that's if they want to be in a metal band, Slayer is the model. So, final thoughts on Thrash? Anybody? Anybody? Bueller? Bueller? know. Uh, I yeah I yeah
2: I I, I wish they. <laughs> Yeah. They, they, I think it's a dark turn that you, what you tell me that they're going to kind of go to hyphenate instead of exploring where I think it should have gone now, because these were the dry years in which it actually, <clears throat> people who were interested in picking up guitars and playing in four piece groups or rehearsing in garages were actually able to draw some suker from, to get to the next stage. It, it certainly wasn't, you know, it wasn't the people that you would have expected. I, yeah. Like, I don't see, I don't know. I don't know. Um, like when it turned black when death metal turned into black metal and grind and some of these scenes, yeah they may not have sold but obituary and some of these groups out of florida were doing stuff that i thought was really kind of crazy and wild and interesting and and vibed well with having made metal a, a lifestyle that you could live in perpetuity you mm-hmm. know these guys weren't 17 18 years old anymore now you these guys are 40 45 and these were the bands that they were starting right so um but I guess, you know, I mean, this is just my They,
0: particular will, they will have an episode on Extreme Metal. And this is the one that was the sort of the epilogue to the series because VH1 didn't pay for an episode on Extreme Metal, even though Dunn apparently had submitted that in his first proposal. But So they actually did a Kickstarter to do the episode on mm, Extreme Metal where uh, they cover death metal and black metal and black metal you gotta keep in mind was a total reaction against death metal whatever the death metal guys were into the black metal guys were you know it's like those guys don't wear costumes we wear costumes those guys growl real low we shriek real high you know i mean that was totally uh black metal was a reaction against death and i'm on the black metal side of that that fence i much prefer black metal to uh to slayer and you know uh, apologies i i i I try not to endorse any of the Nazi or satanic messaging when I'm listening to Black Metal, even though you know there's no way to forgive I, the crap that some of those guys did. But
2: the the guy the guy from uh, from Leviathan was the one who turned turned me because he's was a tattoo guy, so he'd be sitting doing tattoos. Why don't you listen to my new band? I was like, it didn't make any sense to me, and probably about after the third tattoo, I was like hey this is all right (laughs) i can't i I can't read what the hell your band name is but the music is not bad you know so
0: yep yep so but next time we're going to talk about grunge and i'll look forward to seeing how they how they treat grunge because is grunge metal what's it doing in the history of metal so thanks and we'll talk to you next time
1: Follow the Letter Roll podcast on Twitter at Rollcast and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Next week, Nate returns with Ryan Harkness to kick off the third Techno Roll series, which focuses on the long, slow climb of electronic dance music in the USA. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com.